The Nuts and Bolts of Writing, Season Two, a podcast where we talk about literature, the ins and outs of writing, and how to actually start writing. Hello, everyone. I am Arin Rovelev, one of the co-hosts of the Nuts and Bolts of Writing. Today, I will be interviewing writer Ashwini Gangal. Two of her short stories have appeared in our literary magazine, The Unconventional Courier, namely Brown Gaze and Hotoli and Botoli. Her writings go deep into the human mind, and just when you think you understand the protagonist and her complexity, the story takes an unexpected turn and strikes you with the width of what there is yet to know. After completing a rigorous master's degree in clinical psychology, Ashwini Gangal switched fields completely and worked as a media journalist at AFAX, India's most trusted B2B.com, for 12 years, her specialty being advertising and marketing. In mid 2022, she moved on from AFAX to pursue her passion, poetry, fiction writing, academia, and scholarship. She is currently enjoying a creatively energizing sabbatical as she nurses her neurosis, eats through her savings, and tries not to go completely mad. She has books to help her with that as she is an insatiable reader. Her own works of fiction have appeared in numerous publications, including Dance Macabre, Piker Press, The Bangalore Review, India Currents, The Hooli Review, and many more. I have provided links to her stories published in The Unconventional Courier, to her website, and social media in the description of this interview. Hello, Ashwini, and welcome to the Nuts and Bolts of Writing. Hi, Helvon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you here and to be able to discuss literature and other topics with you today. So one thing I love about your stories is that they blend uh, realism and a minute attention to details in painting uh, society and human nature with an Mm. unexpected surrealism. And I think many of them have a dark edge. Um, I think you take your stories in a bold direction and um, then give them this thrilling twist. And still you manage to keep the focus on character psychology. And I think this is quite rare because we don't often encounter this with contemporary prose. Because I think we either see a focus on the twists, so a more plot-oriented story, or a more static piece about mundane human experiences. Hmm. So um, I think your style is really striking, which leads to my first question. What inspires you to write like this? Wow, wow. Uh, Thank you so much. That's a very long question. Thanks for all the compliments. You know, I have to tell you, even my mother keeps asking me, why can't you write something cheerful, something happy for a change? Why is your work so depressing and so dark and morbid? Um, I think parents often have this concern. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, why can't you write a love story for a change? I said, no, that's boring. (laughs) But I think, so I have introspective, you know, I didn't even realize I have this bent or this kind of uh, tack before people started pointing it out. And now that you asked me, I'm really introspecting. So this morning I was thinking, oh my God, I haven't rehearsed or practiced at all. I don't know what I'm going to say when she asks me this. But then a tiny voice in my head said, hey, Ash, you've been rehearsing for this interview all your life. You've been waiting for someone to ask you questions about your work and your creativity. So um, I'd, uh, I think I'm naturally drawn to it. I don't think it's by design. 
I think it's just an orientation uh, that I can't really help. So if I see a human being, um, part of my mind is thinking, oh, in 70 years, that's cops. That's that's going to be a corpse in a grave. Or if I see an apple today, a fresh red apple, a part of my mind is thinking, oh, you know, in two days, if you don't put this in the fridge, it's going to have fungus on it. So it's weird, but um, it's it's just an orientation. This sort of thing comes readily to me. So I don't think it's deliberate or by design. Um, but it's it's also that, you know, I... I really feel to be happy, we all kind of delude ourselves and we forget about all the bad stuff that goes on around us and in the world. But I'm very sensitive to it. So maybe that's another place it comes from. So I, I really see the world through, um, you know, very realistic glasses. There's no rose tint on my glasses. I see things as they are. And that sometimes gives a, a dark or negative spin to things. So I, I I don't delude myself about how horrible the world really is. So maybe that that that's where it comes from. I see. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting uh, explanation. So in 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 a sense, it is uh, empathy. It is uh, your mm. introspective nature and uh, um, your analytical nature as well, because you look very deep into things. Yes, yes. And again, not by design. You know, I don't wake up one morning. I don't wake up and say, oh, today I'm going to write something dark. Let me write something horrible or morbid where bad things happen. No, it just comes naturally. So um, it's, it's, it's only now that I'm analyzing it because I've been getting these questions. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, uh, I'm thinking, does it have to do with uh, also the type of fiction you like to read and not only to write? Do you, uh, I know that you love reading a lot. And uh, I, I was meaning to ask you about this. Uh, do you usually read authors that are similar to what you write? And uh, have you got any authors in work of fiction that you draw upon mm -hmm. when creating your own stories? Ah, uh, let's see, let's see. So see, the my, my main endeavor is to be original. So so no, I don't try to write like the authors I read. Uh, I'm very aware of this whole thing of, you know, imitation or copying your favorite authors. So I, I try to avoid that very deliberately. But let's see, I think this happened in the pandemic. So this this, this whole orientation kind of came into its own after March 2020. So what happened was I stayed indoors for a very long time. A lot of people did. So I know it's not a unique thing. But I actually, I was classified as as uh, someone on the paranoid end of the spectrum because my friends were cheating a lot and they kind of went out, met their girlfriends and boyfriends and, you know, went out and, and had little, you know, coffee dates with each other. But I, I really didn't. So I didn't go anywhere. And that, I think, did something to me. So on, on the one hand, um, my house kind of came alive for me. So when you spend so much time indoors in the same place, sitting on the same sofa, doing the same stuff every day, things get repetitive, things change. Your whole orientation, your perspective changes. So one thing that happened was my house came alive for me and it became like this, this giant monster or organism. And I was merely a part of that big monster. So I was like an organ in, in the stomach or in the body of this monster, which was my house. I was like a wandering spleen in in the in the body of this house. Uh, that happened, so that also put like a twist to it. But your question really was about the stuff I read. So when I was indoors, when I you know me the wandering spleen in this monster kept on reading. So I just kept on reading nonstop, day in day out. I had a job, of course, but by night I would just keep reading, and I started reading about past pandemics. So that's how it all started. 
And because on the one hand, we used to watch the news. My mother and I, we were very clued into what was happening with the numbers, with the deaths, with the COVID figures. So there was the news, which was about very much about the here and now, the um, or then and now, I should say, because this was back in 2020. But in that moment, it was about what was going on in the real world. But then when I read books on past epidemics and, and past pandemics, I realized that this is not, this is our moment. This is our big plague moment in this century. But it's something that humankind has lived with from the beginning. So there was this surreal sense of the hourglass kind of shattering. There is no present and future and past. Infectious disease is something we have lived with ever since we've inhabited the planet. It just so happened that we kind of woke up to it collectively in March 2020 and onwards. But um, so it's not just um, uh, airborne infectious diseases. I started reading about, say, smallpox, uh, cholera. Uh, the 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 fourteenth century plague, uh, syphilis, uh, HIV AIDS, influenza, uh, rabies, uh, tuberculosis. So I started reading about all these diseases and what they did to the human uh, to, to to the human condition, as it were. Um, so maybe that kind of bled into my writing. Uh, you know, all this reading, not not so much in terms of style, but in, as inspiration. And I realized that. Um, Infectious disease is just, it's as normal as uh, a healthy day. So, uh, and not just that, it kind of turned me into a bit of a misanthrope also, because I, I realized that um, uh, a lot of these are caused by the ecological damage that humans have inflicted upon the planet. So, uh, we have hastened the process of, of, of the spread of infectious diseases in a big way. And not just that. The only vista or vantage point that you and I have is the human homo sapien perspective. But when you think from the perspective of any other creature, us and viruses or us and germs and or us and bacteria, us and fungi, us and parasites are not that different. Because what does um, the plague germ or, or you know the flea uh, want to do? It wants to thrive, multiply, survive and live off other creatures. That's exactly what we do as humans. We want to multiply you know, create more humans. We want to, we live off other animals. We eat them. We breed them for consumption. Um, so then you realize that you just, you start empathizing with the virus and you start realizing that we're not that different. Forget about being superior. We're actually two types of species with the same goal. And we're just caught in this battle uh, of territory pretty much. So um, I think all these things, all this realization bled into my writing. And I, I didn't even realize at the time that this was becoming my type or my theme or my style. It's only now that I look back on the stuff I've written over the past um, uh, uh, two, three years that I, I, I also do a double take and say, hey, this is this is all, uh, you know, you can string it all together and, and, and you can uh, join these dots and draw a straight line through all these pieces of writing. And they do have a common theme, which is uh, which is not very bright. This is truly fascinating. And I think that in, in the past years, uh, uh, we all have had the chance to reflect a bit on pandemics, but then yeah. the perspective that you uh, detail upon right now, it's it's yeah. truly fascinating. I hadn't thought about it like this, about yeah. our commonalities with the virus and with other organisms. And may yeah. I say that I know that 
one of your stories, um, you know, it, it, um, memories from that story of yours are coming back to me now that you describe the house as a living organism. And I don't want to uh, to give any spoilers to the readers of The Unconventional Courier, but right. um, I think we're going to see that story quite soon. And am I wrong? Is that story influenced by your ideas during the pandemic as well? So, so are you talking about Hotoli and Botoli? Uh, no. Abaka and the Intruder. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Uh, Abaka and the Intruder pretty much happened, uh, yeah, in my house. And that's where the inspiration came from. Because I really do think that um, fiction is nothing but like an embellished, uh, exaggerated, hyperbolic version of reality. So um, uh, when you ask a fiction writer where he or she gets uh, his or her ideas from, it's it's a redundant question because it's pretty much from their own lives. So I do think that fiction is like the author's uh, own reality observations, real life insights, but on steroids. So Abaka and the Intruder is, uh, you know, it's it was very much my day to day that inspired it, but it's obviously a very uh, exaggerated version of that. I see. That is fascinating. And now I'm going to uh, reread your story uh, through this lens, <laughs> through yeah. in, in the light of what you just said. So, yeah. wow. I, I actually wanted to ask you about the inspiration because uh, for those stories that we have already published in the Unconventional Korea and the one that's coming out uh, this month. So, well, you said that is from uh, your own experiences, but I'm still mm. going to ask you because I find them fascinating. So, Brian, uh, mm. Gaze, the one that uh, already mm. appeared. Um, yeah. It's a wonderful short piece about cultural identity. Um, mm-hmm. Given that it's more rooted in the real world than some yes. of your other stories, I mean, yes. all of them are rooted in the real world, but would you say that this one is a bit more personal to you? Or not? Yes, really? definitely. Yes. No, no, definitely. Uh, and this one is actually, a. It, it's very different from uh, the kind of stuff we've been discussing so far, right? The dark-themed, morbid, macabre stuff. So this one is actually... It, though it's fiction, I would classify Brown Gaze as fiction. It can pretty much be nonfiction also because this is something that actually happened to me. So I'm very new here in the United States. I've been here for less than four months. Uh, and when I was in, you know, when I landed, I was in San Francisco and I used to take walks around the area in Pacific Heights. And um, there are lots of Indians here. There are lots of brown people here, right? So I would, what happens is you make fleeting eye contact with with people uh, and it's it's fine, but when you make eye contact with someone of your own color, uh, something happens. Uh, it's it's just one second. Uh, it takes one second to to. It's like an acknowledgement. Uh, it's it's not even a smile. Sometimes it's just a gaze, and that's where it came from. So there's a there's half a nod or just like one tenth of a smile. It's like an acknowledgement of of shared ancestry, of shared lineage, of shared pigmentation, and it might be borderline, you know, politically incorrect to say this and to place such an equity uh, on on pigmentation and color, especially in these times. But it's true. And um, a friend of mine told me that, you know, similarly, there's something called the black node, that when two black, uh, black skinned people make eye contact in a foreign country, they also sort of, they nod at each other. There's there's a very uh, micro nod, and that's it. It's a nanosecond and you move on. Um, so I've seen that. I've, I've even, so fr- the same friend also told me that this happens with different subcultures as well. So, um, when she had pink hair, she 
the, the same uh, the same click would happen when she made eye, accidental eye contact with other people on the street strangers with green hair or yellow hair or pink hair so it was like oh i get you you know i feel your sister or i get you brother it was like that so you've also colored your hair a very um, outlandish color so have i so for this one moment we're united and then that's it our paths cross and and we move on so i think it happens with different types of subcultures but in my case i tried to capture what happens with ethnicity Wow, this is excellent, and uh, uh, it's really fascinating when you put it like this because you uh, um, you you feel some shared experiences in in a way when when you look at someone who is uh, similar to you, whether it's about ethnicity uh, or uh, like you said the aesthetic preferences or uh, yeah. yeah, that's true. I think uh, I think it happens. Uh, I really love metal music, heavy metal, and. Uh, yeah. This thing also happens between heavy metal fans, right? When you see someone with, uh, you know, black leather and spikes and everything, they are always nicer to each other, if it makes sense. Maybe to some people, they may seem threatening. But when you see someone who is dressed like you, you're like, hey, brother, you know? Exactly. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly there's an us and them. So part of me is terrified right now because I don't want, um, you know, I don't want to make a, I don't want to sound incorrect in any way or inappropriate by saying this but it happens you know it can happen with beards it can happen with turbans it can happen with piercings tattoos it can happen with anything that kind of makes an in-group um and and uh, alienates uh, the larger population in the best way possible so not in a bad way yeah Yeah. that's true and do you think this uh, makes uh, uh, integration easier when you are living in a different country or it doesn't really matter in that sense um integration in, in, well in in a, in a weird way this is quite the opposite right because by by acknowledging someone who's the same color as you it's 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 um the opposite of integration because that's like saying hey you and i have this big thing in common that others around us don't so mm-hmm. i think not really it doesn't really aid the integration process but um it's it's a bit like uh shared nostalgia like you know i i if you show me a brown person, I already feel like I know something more about the person than than the average person knows about that person because I'm also brown. Um, there's there's some assumptions I can make about them, just bases uh, color. So That's it's more true. that. Yeah, yeah, that that's really well put. And mm-hmm. like I said, brown case is very different from uh, the story that will appear next in the unconventional courier, which is Hotoli and Botoli. Uh, mm-hmm. So without giving any spoilers, I can say that although yeah. it is also centered on the experiences of two women, it is yes. very different from brown gays. Uh, yes. To me, it it almost has a mythical feel. So what oh, was really? that inspiration behind that mm-hmm. woman? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that came across because that was the intention. I wanted it to be more than normal or just something little more than ordinary. You know, it, it, I wanted that haunting feel to, to emanate from the words. And I'm glad that happened, uh, assuming that's what you meant when you said mythical. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, sorry, the question was uh, the inspiration behind it. Yes. Right? It's, yeah. So um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm very preoccupied with being original. I don't want to repeat any templates or um, uh, archetypes that other authors have used in the past. So I actually this, um, I'll give you a bit of context. So there was a competition I was writing for 
I didn't win. I didn't even get shortlisted. So Hotuli and Botuli was something I wrote for the for the Commonwealth Short Story Prize uh, two three years ago, uh, and I think two yeah I don't remember the exact year, but um, uh, it was a weekend, and I I just I was looking online for competitions, and I saw this one, and this is a very prestigious one. So I saw the word limit, I saw what they needed, and I said, okay, I have this germ of an idea. Maybe I can just take the weekend and um, write something. So that's that's how it happened. So I wrote it very fast. But then when I think back, I think the germ was marinating in my brain. It was kind of fermenting uh, for a very long time. So this started a few years ago, pre-pandemic almost. But I had this strange idea of, uh, again, you know, it's so difficult to explain this without spoiling the ending. But I had this strange idea of, let's just call it XYZ. So XYZ type of people in society who are integrated in society, but could be your neighbors, right? And obviously, this is borderline dystopia because um, you can't just go to the market and, and purchase what they purchase, right? So <laughs> the, the, the fact that there's an organized um, market and trade for the kind of thing they're purchasing for consumption means this is not the society you and I live in. Or could it be? So do you really know your neighbors? That's the question. And also, I think this this um, part of it was the shock value. You know, I want to shock people because I feel very strongly about um, vegetarianism. So I uh, and about meat consumption. You know, I think it's uh, cruel to to breed animals for consumption. But somehow it's so normalized that we don't bat an eyelid when we see a slaughterhouse or a poultry farm, you know. it's um, And I've also eaten meat in the past. I've turned vegetarian very recently. Um, but somehow that doesn't shock us. But it's pretty much the same thing. But we're only able to, to understand the magnitude of what goes on behind those closed doors when we think of ourselves in that position. So, you know, I sound like a crazy person right now because uh, I'm not really revealing what it is about, but you know, and hopefully the reader will know once they read it. But uh, yes, exactly, exactly. And yeah. when this uh, interview comes out, uh, yeah. the, the story will have come out as well. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, Yes. So, uh, wow, that's a, that's a wonderful explanation. And I hadn't made the connection with what you said. So it really, it's, it's fascinating, uh, to, yeah. uh, to ask an author to, to be able to ask an author about their inspiration for a certain mm-hmm. story. It's, it's always interesting what they say. Yeah. You know, I was so nervous about being able to articulate this properly because it's one thing to write something, you know, privately, and it's a whole other thing to explain it in so many words like this. So I hope I'm making some sense. <laughs> like, oh, yes, yes, very much. <laughs> Especially yeah. after you've read the story, then it makes a lot of sense. And it's really fun to hear. Yeah, thank you. So, um, about your writing process, um, how do you write? Is it a more structured approach? Uh, or uh, like, do you have a writing schedule? Because I know that a lot of authors say that mm-hmm. you need to have a writing schedule. Um, mm-hmm. Or do you mainly write when you have uh, inspiration? I, I know that you just mm-hmm. mentioned that sometimes you have ideas that you allow to ferment for a very, very long time until you put yes. them on paper. So I get the yeah. sense that your writing is not extremely impulsive or so um no see i'll tell you what's impulsive the impulsive part is the note taking so i always have a notebook or if i don't have a notebook and pen handy i make uh you know i I make these 
drafts on my phone and little notes or I WhatsApp myself or email myself. So that part is impulsive, but I think you can't write a story or you can't write an essay or a poem or any kind of fiction or anything for that matter till the time is right. So that part can't be spontaneous, which is why structure doesn't work for me. So if I wake up every morning at say 7 a.m. and say, okay, between 7 and 9, I'm going to write at my desk, I may draw a blank. But it just comes, it just comes suddenly. And that's when you go back to your notes and and start giving some structure to all those crazy notes. So if you look at my notebook, it's like it's like an insane person's notebook. So there's colors and there's scribbles everywhere. And it's it's just, I, I feel, um, oh, but sorry, this is not going to be on video. I was grabbing my notebook to show the audience. But anyway, I'll show you. But if you yeah. see this notebook, you know, it's just full. So this is an entire wow. notebook of ideas. So this is like a hundred books or a hundred stories in, in here. And wow. That's yeah, but if you ask... It's a lot, but if you, it's, it's, yeah, but I'm not that prolific when, when it comes to actually fleshing these out. So uh, I may end up giving, uh, you know, giving life to just maybe four or five of these over the next two years. So uh, I'm more prolific with my note making and my insight mining uh, than I, than I am with my actual writing. So no structure doesn't work. But then once it comes, once the moment comes, then there's no stopping it. Then you have to stop whatever you're doing. Sometimes I go home if I'm out with friends or if I'm doing something outside. I just cut that short and go home because you're feeling that urge to write. And then you just go and, you know, give life to that idea. Uh, that's, that's, that's been growing for a lot of, for a long time in your mind and in your notebook. I see. I can really relate to what you're saying because I'm sort of the same. I, I, I can be very chaotic when it comes to my my thoughts. And I also am a kind of a slow writer. I mean, I'm I'm mm. a very slow writer. So really? uh, okay. yeah, I mean I, I don't um I'm not sure I ever wrote, you know, a short story in a day or or something that I've heard mm. writers saying that, you know, oh, this short story, I wrote it in a day. That never happened to me. I I, mm. I take notes and then I have to spend a lot of time to, mm. to really let it sit and to put on layers and layers. Uh, and mm. like you said, if I just sit down and I want to, and I say, okay, now I'm going to write, maybe I will end up writing like three sentences <laughs> in two hours. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I don't take too long. Once the moment arrives, I can give birth to a story, uh, say, in, in a day or two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is, yeah, yeah. So what if you already had the idea and you've thought about it for a while, then the actual writing, yeah, that's true. That's true. I was, I was thinking about um, getting the idea and writing it in one day. That never this, happened yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So Hotoli Botoli happened over a weekend because there was also a deadline that always helps. And it's, I think it's a, it's a quite a long story. It's more than 2000 words, but I wrote it over two days. So I didn't do first draft and second draft. What I did for that was now that you make me think about this, I think I did half and half. I wrote the first half on Saturday, second half on Sunday morning. And then I uh, revised the entire thing in one go uh, on Sunday night. I see. I see. So um, um, let's see, you said that notes are helpful to yes. uh, to you. So that's one yes. thing. And uh, spontaneous notes are always having something at hand to, to write the phone or a notebook or something. So that's yeah. one thing that helps you. And also uh, deadlines. Do you think if you set a deadline for yourself without being pressured by a contest or something, do you think that helps? Yes, I think deadlines always help. I I, I live by deadlines um, because I was a journalist, right? For the last 12 years, I was a media journalist in Mumbai. 
uh, where I've moved from. So headlines and deadlines were my life for 12 years. So uh, it always helps. You know, a lot of people tell me that it kills the creativity and it puts pressure and then you can't do your best work. I don't identify with that at all. Uh, I think it always helps. Because we all procrastinate. I think creative people more than others. We procrastinate and we kind of romanticize procrastinating also. We say, no, let it let it fester for some more time. You know, let me develop it a little more. That's nonsense. I think if you just, you know, whip yourself to write faster, you you just write as well as you would have if you had taken 10 more days for it. So deadlines always help me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's actually excellent advice because I wanted to ask you what advice you have mm. for writers. So, well, that's that's really excellent because yes, I think we uh, uh, we often procrastinate. Yeah, so that's the journalist in me, you know, because in journalism, deadlines are sacrosanct. That's true. So, do you think that uh, um, journalism has uh, helped you uh, uh, in your writing, into your in your uh, fiction writing career as well. Definitely, yes. Journalism teaches you to to be economical with your words. Uh, it teaches you to avoid redundancies. If you can say the same thing in two lines, don't use ten. So journalism kind of uh, teaches you to edit your own work as you write it. So I wouldn't use the word censor, but sometimes that too, you know, because we we're all, you know, we're drunk on our own ideas and we're in love with our own words. So we don't really have the heart to cut anything out. You know, you want everything to be published. But when you're a journalist, there's part of you that's that's indulging yourself. And there's, there's part of you that's that's bringing the scalpel to your words and saying, no, this has to go. This has to go. No, no, the reader is going to get bored over here. So I think jo- the journalist in me is the editor in me keeps that um uh, that that's uh, what's the word for it it keeps the string, stringency alive in my writing I don't overindulge myself that's true that's true right right so so you had a lot to uh, to learn from your career as a journalist definitely definitely because it's again it's all about words right though in journalism of course you're interviewing people and it's it's news reporting and it's it's news uh, pu- pu- publishing um, sorry beg your pardon it's news publishing but uh, it's still uh, you're still playing with words. You're, you still want to use the right words in the headline. You only have a certain number of character uh, characters or words you can use in a headline, and that has to bait the reader to read the entire article. So in many ways, when I'm uh, deciding on uh, the the titles for my stories, I I put on my uh, journalist and editor's hat, and, and think of my title as a headline for for the, for the uh, story, which is then the news article. Ah, I see. Right. Which could also double up as a news article. Yeah. Ah, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Right. So, um, well, uh, apart from uh, literature, I know that you are also interested in mental health. And I have a feeling that this ties a lot with your, uh, um, uh, w- with all the psychology that you put into your stories. Could you tell us a bit more about this interest of yours? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So more than an interest, it's also my background and my training. So um, as a, this was, of course, many years ago. Uh, this was in 2009. Uh, but I uh, got my master's in clinical psychology from Mumbai University. So I'm trained to, to diagnose and to treat uh, mental disorders and mental illness. So I've interned at a mental hospital back in India. And uh, that kind of, so though I never practiced as a psychologist, that kind of gave me a lens for the rest of my life. So after my master's, I put on that lens and I've not removed it since. So I do see the world through that lens even today. So maybe that also 
um bleeds into my writing my fiction writing now and also my reading so i do read a lot of books on uh, mental health and um, mental illness uh, just for pleasure just to keep that spark alive because i'm genuinely interested in it so that's uh, it's it's my educational background that that has brought that to my uh, life and my work more than anything that's really fascinating to see how two uh, uh, two uh, passions of yours, uh, which is journalism and mental health, are influencing yes. your writing and are uh, leading into your stories and uh, yes, also inspiring out. you. As it turns out, yes. You know, it's it's so so funny, Helen. A lot of these things uh, I'm noticing now for the first time through this conversation. So I didn't even realize a lot of these things. So thanks to you, I can now see all the all the mixed and parallel influences uh, that are the, like coming into my. I hit the word bleed. I've used it four times already, but that bleed into my writing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. see that. That's excellent. Uh, and uh, <laughs> talking about your own writing really helps you uh, crystallize your ideas and. Uh, the, the processes that you uh, were doing but you weren't really aware of. Exactly, exactly. And see, I just caught myself there because I realized I've used the word bleed into bleed into four times in a conversation. So imagine if this was something I was writing, the editor and me would use synonyms, you know, I would say, okay, I've used bleed once, now say seep into or soak into or something else, you know, permeate into, percolate into. So that's that's the journalist in me, trying not to repeat the same word two or three times in the same story. So it happens even in conversations when I catch myself using the same metaphor or the same uh, adjective, I kind of say, no, no, use a different word now. It's getting, it's getting boring. So... <laughs> can't switch it off yeah yeah wow <laughs> yeah um so uh well uh one last question for you because i know that you really love reading and uh you've already told us about the non-fiction that you are interested in how about the fiction uh have you got some favorite authors uh yeah yeah i have uh so i really like reading translated fiction so fiction that was not written in English originally. So um, I, I like Orhan Pamuk, uh, the Turkish author. I like Elif Shafak, who is also Turkish. But unlike Orhan, who writes in uh, his native language and, and then gets his work translated into English, Elif Shafak is also Turkish, but she writes in English. So I read her books in, in the language that she writes them in. Uh, but she's also Turkish. Then I, um, I like... Um, uh, which are the translated fiction do I read? So I'll get back to you on that. But um, I also enjoy Salman Rushdie. I also enjoy Jhumpa Lahiri. I like uh, Donna Tart, uh, you know, contemporary uh, writer. She she fascinates me. So this note-making thing, you know, I just flatter myself because she also does this. So I read in some interview of hers that she does this as well. And she makes, you know, a lot of notes. And I said, hey, I have something in common with a Pulitzer Prize winning author. That's, that's, I've arrived, you know, so I, <laughs> but turns out she also does that, you know, uh, and that's, that's purely coincidental. Like I didn't copy that style. Uh, so Donna Tart is someone I really love. So I love the goldfinch. You know, she's written she's written only three novels. Can you believe it? So she takes a speaking about slow writing, she takes about a decade to write a book. Ten years. Wow. So she took wow. ten years to write the goldfinch and another eight or ten years to write uh, her second book. Uh, sorry, I don't even think Goldfinch is her second. I think Goldfinch is her third. I think The Little Friend and The Secret History are the first and second, um, not necessarily in that order. But yes, so over three wow. decades, she produced three books. Yeah, so I really love her work. Uh, I sorry, have I'm no going idea. This is a tangent. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, this is really encouraging for someone like me. So. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm also a very slow reader. So forget about slow writing. I read very slowly. I, I read a lot, but I read slow. I know people who just breeze through books, you know, on one flight of say eight hours, they finished one book yeah. and I finished maybe five pages in the same amount of time. I, I, I can't read fast. So I meditate on every word. It's really good to internalize, right? When you when you read something. Yeah, and to absorb it, you know, just, just yeah. let it sink in. So uh, I, I read carefully. Otherwise, you're just trying to tick mark uh, things and say, oh, I finished one more book, I finished one more book. But that's not the point. The point is to actually enjoy it. That's and no one's keeping score. No one's counting. Nobody cares, actually, <laughs> how many <laughs> books we've read. Yeah. That's very true. It's it's always best to to let it inspire you and to absorb things that uh well not that you can use uh literally in your writings, but uh, yeah. uh just yeah. just let it inspire you and get you into into that mood of uh the world of of words, right? Yeah, the the use thing has to be incidental. That can't be intentional. The intentional part is to just enjoy it in the moment. To to just read it for its own sake you know not as a means to an end but an end in itself just enjoy that moment of reading wow that's very true mm-hmm. wow th- this was really fascinating to talk to you and yeah. uh, unfortunately we don't have a lot of time left but uh, i really want to thank you for uh, all of the wonderful ideas and um, um what you revealed about your stories about your inspiration and your worldview and uh, uh also mm. the advice for writers because in this podcast we uh, uh we talk about how to approach it, how to approach certain aspects of the writing process so oh, your wow. advice is also wonderful for uh, um for people who are writing not only new writers but you know it's it's always a uh, it can always be a struggle <laughs> we, i think we all have our moments of doubt and it's it's great to hear other authors yeah. and that ourselves inspired by um the yeah. way we approach things thank you so much you know not, not just moments of doubt my goodness i think i live in doubt like i just live with self doubt so it's it's moments of confidence <laughs> Because the law is really out. so much. It's horrible. <laughs> so it's like, don't let my smile fool you. I'm terrified right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is yeah. really excellent to, to talk to uh, authors that you admire and to realize that they have uh, very similar um, concerns and struggles as you do. So uh, wow. this is why uh, conversations like this are, are really wonderful and, uh, and, and, and enlightening. So uh, thank you so much, Ashwini Gangal. This is, was a fantastic uh, conversation. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much, Helivon. I, I am so happy. You know, I'm so happy right now uh, because like I said at the beginning of this conversation, I've been rehearsing for this for a very long time, for two decades. You know, I've practiced my answers. You know, this is what I'm going to say when someday someone interviews me about my writing. So, uh, you know, this is a, a small moment of, of glory for me. So thank you. That's excellent. And I hope to see you again uh, on our podcast and in our magazine, The Unconventional Courier. So thank you again. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you. Bye. Bye Goodbye.